0: And this is The Economist Asks. And this week we're asking, can we improve the way we die? We'll be asking one of the world's most influential doctors about what makes death so difficult.
1: We now have more people who experience severe pain for a month or more of their last year of life.
0: And whether we need to stop caring quite so much about survival.
1: People have priorities in their life besides just living longer. They have goals and priorities for the quality of their life, as well as the quantity of their life.
0: The past 150 years have seen remarkable changes in how, where and when humans die. Before the 20th century, most deaths occurred at home and illnesses killed quickly. Today, more and more people are dying in hospitals or in nursing homes. And for increasing numbers, the end comes only after extended and painful battles with disease and decline. Medicine has done wonders in helping us live longer lives, but should it also be searching for better ways to end them? Atul Gawande is a surgeon and author who's written extensively on mortality. His book, Being Mortal, transformed the debate about dying patients. And his non-profit, Ariadne Labs, also does hands-on work, trying to change how doctors deal with patients who are terminally ill. John McDermott is The Economist's global public policy editor, and he's been looking into the changing landscape of death all over the world. So we sent John on the road to speak to Atul about how dying has changed and what other changes we might still need to make.
2: Hello, Atul.
1: Great to be here, John.
2: (laughs) In Being Mortal, you argued that the experiment of making mortality a medical experience is failing. Remind us what you meant by that.
1: The best way I can think of it is um, in two respects. Number one, we have um, made it a very institutional experience. So I, as a surgeon, saw it repeatedly. Someone would come, it'd be a situation which I had very little thought that we were actually going to be able to rescue the situation. But we'd say, well, should we do something or should we do nothing? And then, of course, we all say, well, of course we should try something. And we'll go to the operating room and I'll try to remove the unremovable tumor or address whatever it is that is causing the problem. And then, you know, they never wake up again. They never realized that they weren't going to be waking up again. They never had their chance to say goodbye. I love you, I'm sorry. Families six months after death when people have died in intensive care, they have uh, high rates of essentially post-traumatic stress disorder. We have increased the amount of suffering people experience in the last parts of their life. So, for example, compared to two decades ago, we now have more people who experience severe pain for a month or more of their last year of life. We have more people who experience nausea. We have more people who experience severe delirium. And that's despite our medical capability. My suspicion is it's because of it.
2: And people don't want this, needless to say. We did this big survey for The Economist asking people healthy and also who have some serious illness or have gone through a process of caring for a loved one with serious illness. And there's this huge gap between what they say they want in terms of where and how and with whom they spend their final days and what they expect to get and what those loved ones had gotten. How realistic do you think it is to bridge that gap? It is on the
1: face of it, seemingly this impossible problem, right? So what we recognize is that it's about 25% of people, uh, 25% of our spending, over the age of 65 on healthcare is in the last year of life. And it would be much easier if I knew which year was that last year of life as a clinician. The uncertainty, is this the end, is this not the end, is what makes it feel impossible. But there's a set of research that I think has really dramatically changed our thinking about the way that it has to go. People, and this is gonna sound so dumb, (laughs) but People have priorities in their life besides just living longer. They have goals and priorities for the quality of their life, as well as the quantity of their life. When we don't ask what those goals and priorities are, not surprisingly, our treatment is often out of alignment with the quality of life that they are seeking. And the result of that is suffering. When we do ask, what are your fears if your health worsens? What are your goals? if time is short? What are you willing to go through and not willing to go through? What's the minimum quality of life you'd find acceptable? The answers you get start telling you what their goals for their quality of life is. And then if you align the treatment with those goals, what people end up choosing is to not continue on the chemotherapy, or go for advanced surgery as last-ditch efforts, as a kind of heroic last maneuver and instead spending more time at home not only in the last few days of life but overall in their last few months of life that they uh, are less likely to die in the hospital in the ICU more likely to choose hospice care and they do not live shorter in many of the studies the indicators are that they live longer
2: that's the remarkable thing some people have suggested it's because if you're less likely to go to hospital you're less likely to pick up an infection others though have said it has more to do with almost the psychological effect of having these conversations. Where'd you stand?
1: Our therapies that we might try as disease advances have a lot of toxicities associated with them. Your most likely week in which you're going to have surgery in your life is the last week of life. If you're getting surgery you're going through all the pain, all the disability, all of the the risks, and you haven't had time to heal to benefit from it. If you are able to assert your own control to say, my goal is that I want to be home as much as possible as I face this serious illness that seems to only be getting worse rather than better. Then you're declaring, I'm fighting for having a good day today rather than giving up on having a good day today for some possibility of time in the future that is fast drifting away. You aren't hitting them with stuff that hurts you're helping them with the things that have them achieve a better day. It's not uh, surprising that um, people tend to do better once you understand that.
2: When I was in Japan doing some reporting for a piece on end-of-life care around the world for The Economist, I spoke to a senior doctor and we were talking about some of the work you'd been doing and he looked at me and said, ah, you see, John, death is messy and I think the point he was making is that while in theory it is great to be able to have these structured conversations a good period of time out before the end occurs, often you can't do that. In particular, you might not be able to do that when, say, the patient is mentally deteriorating, whether they have dementia or Alzheimer's. How can you have better serious illness care involving better communication? when it's hard for the patients to communicate.
1: So I did interviews with people in their first month in nursing home. Uh, and I remember meeting a uh, patient with advanced Alzheimer's dementia. And she had medical orders that she'd be on a pureed food only diet, because when it becomes advanced dementia, you can also have difficulty coordinating your swallowing. And the concern is they could she could potentially choke. And the staff would catch her stealing cookies from her neighbors. And she was hoarding them, hiding them, and every time the staff would take them back, scold her, write her up, (laughs) call the family at home, say, she's taking cookies again if, you know, you have to help us stop her. And it just breaks your heart, because here she is, she's expressing her joy. She's telling you with her actions what is meaningful and important to her. She didn't know the risk of choking, but she was eating the cookies and you can have a discussion, could have had a discussion with her before she reached that stage, or with the family to say, is this a risk that you acting on her behalf are willing to take? More and more, when you visit old-age homes, there are these big places with these long halls and people slumped over in their wheelchairs, you know, in a very depressing vision, and they're built around a nursing station, and they look like hospitals. But then I visited several places that were built instead around a kitchen, just like your home. And in the kitchen, you had a refrigerator. And in the refrigerator, you could go in at any time and eat whatever you wanted.
2: You know there's one in France that's built around a vineyard.
1: Right. (laughs) And... The first response that traditional administrators these places say is you let them go into the kitchen and take whatever they want. What if a diabetic goes in and takes a soda? Well, that's a choice we all make every day in our own homes. And if you just because you're in a place where you need help doesn't mean you should have to give up on your autonomy and your choices. And yes, if you are cognitively impaired, then it goes to the healthcare agent who makes decisions for you to make these choices. And that's why it's critical to make it normal to have these conversations about what you would consider acceptable quality of life and what you would consider not acceptable quality of life.
2: So when do you have these conversations? You've developed this single page guide for how non-palliative care doctors in particular should have conversations about serious illness. When do you work out,
1: this patient's ready? It's never wrong to have this conversation. Furthermore, it is not a one-time conversation. This is a process, not an epiphany. I wrote about in my last book, Being Mortal, the course that my father, who was a surgeon, took with a brain tumor in his brain stem and spinal cord. It was not curable. Uh, It was growing very slowly. So we didn't know how long it would take. Would it take a decade, two decades? As it happened, it was about three years. And the conversation at first about what was important to him was, as long as I can do surgery, I will take any treatment, as long as it can help me continue to do surgery. And so that was how we kind of planned the treatment. And then when it reached the point where he became paralyzed in one arm and he couldn't do surgery anymore, he he thought his life was over. And then he discovered all the things that still made life worth living to him, which was, he's an incredibly social creature. He was very involved in charitable work in the community, and he wanted to be able to say, I can still eat at the dinner table, be with family or friends, and do these projects. And that became the goal. Could we keep him there? But it became clear that that meant he did not want a feeding tube. When he started to have difficulty breathing, that he would not want to be in a ventilator in a nursing home. And that guided our path the whole way.
2: What do you do with those patients that do express just utter fear, dread.
1: this is a process and having the, you've opened the door to the discussion you've let them know you're willing to have the discussion but you ask permission and if they say that right now they really just want to focus on the treatment and whatever plan you're on now then you do and then you raise the question again with i'm concerned i want to be able to have a plan for i want to have some discussion about your goals and what's important to you if things should worsen and is that something we could talk about now And you've opened the door and you said, it's okay. There will be 5% or so who have severe denial. They are nowhere near registering. You know, one of the questions you ask is, what is your understanding of where you are with your illness or your health at this time? And you'll have people who have no conception that they have been getting worse and worse and worse, that they went from being able to walk into the clinic to now being in a wheelchair on oxygen no, 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 I've been fine the whole time, and, uh, and it's going to be fine. Those are the folks where you absolutely do not want to push, but you need the expertise of the palliative care expert, because dealing with people who are, have severe denial, pushing back only fractures your relationship and may push them into a corner and make matters worse rather than better.
2: Every year about 55 million people die, and the number is only getting higher. How applicable do you think what you're trying to do is to other healthcare settings where doctors are busier, there are more patients, and perhaps the patients themselves are less willing to have these types of conversations. How applicable do you think these conversation guides are?
1: Right now we've been testing them and developing them primarily in places like the US and the U.K. Um, I do think, however, we're seeing the growth of hospice care and palliative care everywhere around the world, from cities across India and southern Africa to Latin America and beyond. There's also, I think, a a sequence that occurs over time. People go from, uh, at the very poorest levels, die at home because there's no access to health care. Then as their economy improves and as their health system improves, they go and seek care in the healthcare system. Then as their uh, economics improves, they start asking for not just commitment that they have quantity of life, but they start demanding that there be quality of life associated. And that's why you're already seeing in the cities in in, uh, many parts of the world development of hospice and palliative care and wanting to be able to have um, uh, the kind of brutal experience many people have at the end of life not be their norm. The response I got when I did some touring in China as well as India was that these issues were identical. Um, so it's it's widely applicable because people are going through this shift as you start seeing old age uh, become a norm all over the
2: world. There is, a I think, a sense in which you can't give people the serious illness care that they... Need without doing something to the kind of wider system of how healthcare is delivered. I think a lot of people that I spoke to in the reporting said the financial incentives that are embedded in healthcare, the way doctors are paid, still work against having these conversations. They're still paid to fix stuff, not talk to people. What do you think is needed in terms of the plumbing of healthcare to make this happen?
1: I don't think people realize, but in the United States we've gone from less than 20% of the population having hospice care at home as part of uh, their care, to now more than 50% dying at home or at a hospice facility. Ronald Reagan, of all people, was the one who signed into law that hospice care would be provided as an entitlement, as a universal benefit of the Medicare program, which is the program for the elderly and the disabled. And so the result is that in the last ten years we've seen enormous growth. By contrast, in the National Health Service, it is still largely provided as a charitable uh, kind of uh, provision, without very much uh, support and commitment to it as a, to, without the commitment to it as part of the regular package of care. The second thing is that in the U.S. it's been a commitment that you only get hospice care if you give up all of the curative treatment. So you have to make a choice that you're gonna give up your regular doctors, you're not going to have an option to return to taking chemotherapy or doing surgery or getting radiation. And that makes people very reluctant to sign up.
2: And that reflects a broader view of palliative care, I think, which is... It's for, not just for the very end. Yeah, it's the, people will say, oh, it's what we do when we give up hope. Right,
1: and I used to say that. I used to say to my patients, you know, they would say, should I see someone from palliative care? And I would say, oh, no, 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 we still have options.
2: <laughs> so Medicare doesn't pay for that. It, it, it pays either for you to be in hospital or in a hospice. But...
1: That's right. And it's an important distinction to make here. Palliative care is care focused on your improving the quality of your care and addressing symptoms and other things, regardless of whether you got hospice or not, right? So you can see a palliative care clinician at the hospital. But hospice care is the at home or in a residence services to ensure you have uh, provision of the right treatments. And there's good evidence that when you take away the requirement that you have to give up on curative care for your condition, that people are much more likely to sign up for the hospice care and then, they're, then they stop taking aggressive treatments earlier. And the overall net result is both better quality of life and lower costs along
2: the way. And as well as changes to how the financial plumbing works. What about regulation? Because I think a lot of nursing homes and hospitals, they're squarely focused on safety and survival, but none of these broader outcomes that you referred to earlier are included, is that right?
1: That's right. The The measures that we apply for rating old age homes uh, in the US and in the UK are primarily weighted towards looking at safety measures. but There's very little to assess, are people lonely? Are they isolated? Is their privacy being violated? Do they feel they have choice and autonomy about their life in some core way? And furthermore, the decision maker about where a person is going to be is usually their adult child. They're looking to a son or daughter for the choice about where they go. And that person is usually asking, is it safe? That's what they're focused on. As one nursing home director said to me, safety is what we want for those we love, but autonomy is what we want for ourselves. Really basic human stuff that start to make these places something that don't seem just like a prison, <laughs> but cool. actually become a home.
2: Uh, Dr. Atogwande, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
0: And if you've any thoughts or perhaps final words on this, don't forget to tweet us at Economist Radio, or you can send us an email, radio at That's it for this week's Economist Asks. In London, this is The Economist.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.